You may be seated. If you have a Bible with you, open it to the book of Esther. We will be in the eighth chapter of the book of Esther. If you don't have one with you, you are more than welcome to, of course, borrow the pew Bible in front of you, and that black ESV Bible will have Esther chapter 8 on page 414. This past week in America and in Ireland and in England, we have celebrated St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick was a wonderful and important Christian missionary. He was a faithful man who brought the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the British Isles, specifically Britain and, or England and Ireland. We celebrate and remember his legacy by generally drinking ourselves stupid and uh, doing uh, Many acts of debauchery, when I say we, please understand the royal we, right? So, it's a strange thing that a man who is so dedicated to the preaching of the gospel of Christ, a man who is known not only for piety but for faithfulness, is remembered and has a day named after him which is primarily there simply to drink. It is a good reminder for us that much of the influence of our life lives on far beyond our death, and certainly is out of our control. Like stones dropped in a pond, those ripples will spread out, and we have no control over them after they leave. Those ripples go out far after our stones have fallen into the rest of the water, never to be heard from again. Some stones are greater. They make bigger waves. They have greater influence. Some are smaller, but every one of us makes waves. My influence will be felt at the very least in my children and likely to their children's children. And as you go down the generations, if the Lord tarries, that influence will be felt less and less. But nevertheless, after I die, my influence will go on. We've passed the dramatic climax of Esther. In Esther chapter 7, much of the drama seems to have passed the great explosion from the king of who has done this and Esther's response to this wicked, evil Haman, an enemy and a foe, is by far the dramatic pinnacle of the book and the destruction and desecration of Haman on the gallows that he himself made for Mordecai seems like a righteous end to the book. But although that stone has sunk into the depths of Sheol, his influence lingers on and it is still felt. The edict that he wrote in chapter 3 is still there. The existential threat to the people of God is still present. Chapter 8 deals with how both Mordecai and Esther will attempt to reverse something that is irreversible. Haman's wicked plan and their repercussions continue to go out. How are they going to handle this? The book of Esther is known for its dramatic reversals. We got a picture of this back in chapter 6 when Haman is asked by the king what should be done for the man who the king wants to honor. And thinking that the king is speaking of him, he goes through a litany of things that ought to be done only to have it all reversed on him for the man whom he wanted to kill. This is a part of what we get throughout the book of Esther. And as we begin chapter 8, even though the reversal in chapter 6 seems like it is well played and, and well done, we understand that it is something of a temporary fix, but now in chapter 8 we get the permanent reversal of these things. But these reversals are not something that we should see, they're just nice side effects of the book of Esther, nice things that happen to happen in the book of Esther, but rather 
They are things that must happen in the book of Esther. Esther is a shadow of the gospel. And these portrayals are part and parcel of what the gospel tells us. Let us read chapter 8 and hear the word of our Lord. Read with me beginning in chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told Uh, For Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, 
for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is the word of our God. As we look at chapter 8, the ESV has done a good job in breaking down this chapter into four paragraphs. They kind of form an inclusio in the beginning paragraph and the end paragraph, talk about how this enemy of the Jews has been reversed. All the things that he had and more so have now been given over to Mordecai, this man of the Jewish nation. And what's more, even the edict that he made is reversed in the middle two paragraphs. We will deal with each of these topics together. First, we'll talk about the reversal in the fortune of the enemy. The reversal in the fortune of the enemy. It is fitting and right that we see Mordecai taking up all of the power and all of the possessions that Haman had. It was a known process in the Persian kings that when somebody had committed treason or was found guilty of treason, that they would, if found guilty, the king would capture everything that they owned and give it to whomever they thought was fitting to take it. There should be no one more fitting to take it than Mordecai, who saved the life of the king and who is now revealed is very, very close to Queen Esther, who was also particularly a target of Haman, at least according to the king. The fact that his house is given to Esther and Esther turns that over to Mordecai does not just mean his possessions. It means everything that Haman was in control over, including his family, which is something that will be dealt with in the next chapter. But it is not just his possessions that are given to him. It's quite clear that the power that Haman had is also handed over to him. The king takes the ring off of Haman and puts it on to Mordecai, symbolizing the king's power of authority. The reversal that began in chapter 6 is now all but complete. And it would be helpful for us to remember the positions of both Mordecai and Haman in the book before all of these events kind of unfolded. Haman we knew of. In chapter 3, we find out nothing about him except that he has been promoted. He is powerful and wealthy. When we are introduced to Mordecai, we know Mordecai primarily because of his relationship to Esther. And even though we know him and have a good sense at the beginning of the story that he is to play a large role in the story, for the people of the story, Mordecai is a nobody. When it is told to him that Mordecai the Jew has saved the life of the king, the king promptly forgets. When the king asks his couriers around him and the record keepers what has been done for him, it's almost as though other people should have also taken up the process of rewarding Mordecai for the great work that he did. No one remembers Mordecai. The guy appears utterly forgettable. Even Haman, whose whole life will be wrapped up in hatred and in anger toward Mordecai, at the beginning when we're introduced to him in chapter 3, has no idea who he is. Every time he walks through the gate, everybody kneels before him except for one man, and he doesn't even recognize him. He doesn't know who he is. Not only does he not know his name, he doesn't even know that he's not kneeling. I don't know if Mordecai was exceptionally short or what the deal was, but he had no idea that anyone was standing out. Mordecai was utterly forgettable. He had nothing to his name save that he knew the queen, a fact that he made the queen keep quiet about. Haman, on the other hand, had everything. We are introduced to him only by way of the fact that he is being promoted to second in command. 
He was sly and he was slimy and that allowed him a great deal of power because he could move and manipulate the king as he saw fit. He could lure the king into doing his will. And thus he had the power to carry out his purposes. As he himself says in chapter 6, he was rich, he had many sons, he had a lot of power. Oddly enough, this is shown in chapter 6 by the fact that when the king comes to him and says, well, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? And Haman thinks that he's talking about himself. Haman doesn't ask for power. He doesn't ask for might. He doesn't ask for riches. The only things he asks for are to be paraded around, to sit on the king's old horse, to wear the king's old robes, and to have a crown near him. It's like it's enough for Haman, having everything else in the world, to simply appear kingly. That's all he really wants. He has everything else he could possibly desire. Now all of that has been given to Mordecai. And what's more, even more is given to Mordecai because while Haman wanted to be like a king, the king seems to go out of his way to dress Mordecai as a king. Mordecai, in verse 15, goes out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. He goes out dressed in royal robes. He goes out dressed like a king with a crown, not on a horse, but on his head. The robes of blue and white are reminiscent of the way in which we were introduced to King Ahasuerus with this grand party where all the lavish furnishings, curtains of purple. It's almost as though Ahasuerus is no longer pointing to his palace and pointing to the palatial feasts that he puts on as a way to talk of his splendor and his majesty, but he, he's almost pointing at Mordecai, saying, if you want to know what my splendor and majesty looks like, look at Mordecai. Haman could only dream of being so great. Haman, once great, is now dead and desecrated. Mordecai, once overlooked, is now known and honored. Friends, these are wonderful reminders to us of what Christ calls us to remember, to recall, that there will be a great reversal one day. When the disciples, in the beginning of Matthew 18, ask him who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, they are assuming that, that these 12 men who Jesus has specifically called to him are going to be the greatest in the kingdom. We're easy to go to that chapter and to wonder, won't it be somebody like Haman, who has all the power and has all the authority and has all of the riches and all the wonder of the world? What does Jesus do? He calls to him, a child. And he calls to him a child not because children are precious, not because children are the greatest thing that God has ever given to people. Okay? And I know you might think that about your kids, and you're probably wrong. But the reason why he calls children to him is because children in that day and age were of absolutely no account. They were not to be heard from, they were not to be really talked to at all. They were lower than anyone else. They were barely considered human beings. And he calls this child to him and he says this, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, which is clearly calling the apostles to repent, I think, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And don't, don't be overly concerned with the praise and the adulation 
and the accolades of the world. Don't be overly concerned with possessions in this world. Christ is better than those things. And his rewards and his accolades and his praise are much, much better than those things. And no matter how much of that we lose, no matter how many of our possessions are ripped away from us, God will provide to us all the more. While in the beginning of Matthew 18, the disciples ask about who is the greatest, at the end of Matthew 19, Jesus makes it clear that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. There is a great reversal coming. Those who seem like they are great and mighty and have everything. Those who we look up to as the mighty men and women of the faith. Many of them will be last. And there are many people that we would overlook continuously day after day after day who would be placed first in the kingdom of God. The entire Sermon on the Mount is a testimony to the backwards nature of the kingdom. Who is it who is blessed on the earth Who is it that truly has the blessing of God? According to the Beatitudes, it's the meek and the mourners, the merciful, the poor, and the persecuted. Do you think we honestly believe that? Do we honestly live that way? Do you think we're blessed because we mourn? Because we show mercy? Because we're persecuted? Or rather, do we consider ourselves blessed because we have nice clothes? Money in the bank account nice houses, and good reputations. I was watching basketball yesterday. Charles Barkley is a commentator. I like Charles Barkley. The one thing that Charles Barkley always reminds me of is I had a friend when I was young who had a Charles Barkley shirt. It was a a really nice 1990s shirt. had some pink and some orange in it. And it had a picture of him ripping down a rebound. And the reason why that was important is because Charles Barkley was known as not the most athletic guy, not the biggest guy. He's an NBA Hall of Famer, but he was known as just being tenacious. And on the shirt had the saying, the meek might inherit the earth, but they won't get the ball. I had no idea what the first part of that was about, but I understood the second part. And he's right. The meek will probably not get the ball. The meek will probably not get the things that the earth is overly concerned with. But they will inherit the earth. It is frankly all backwards. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't live it out well. We struggle to truly believe what Jesus has called us to. We struggle to truly believe that that great reversal is coming. It's not just Jesus. His brother picks it up in James 1, verse 9. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So James is basically saying, you know, so certain is this reversal, so certain and sure is this thing, that James is insisting that the faithful thing for a lowly brother to do, the faithful thing for a lowly brother to do is boast in the fact that he is indeed lowly because he trusts that one day God will make him great. The rich, on the other hand, are to boast in their humiliation because God has removed the importance of everything that they've built their life around. 
James 2.5 says this, Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Friends, trust in the reversal that Christ will bring. Humble yourselves that Jesus Christ might exalt you. Secondly, let us speak of these middle two paragraphs and the reversal in the power of the edict. The reversal in the power of the edict. Lest we forget amongst all of that that there is still, even with the death of Haman, a real true threat out against the Jews and the people of God, We are reminded very quickly here in the second paragraph. Esther falls down at his feet. She weeps and she pleads with him to avert the evil plan of Haman. The king extends a golden scepter to her, not because he is sparing her life. She is already before him, but simply to say, I will do everything I can to grant your request. The request comes out of her filled with tears and pleadings. Everything that she has used up to this point, all of her wisdom, plus all of her Emotion, all of her energy is being placed before the king to grant this wish. She says, if I am pleasing in the king's eyes, it's a nice way of saying, if you have ever loved me at all, you will grant this wish. Revoke the edict. The king's response, however, is not the help that she would like. In a sense, he says something along the lines of, you know, I gave you Haman, and I kind of thought that that would be enough. If you really want to do something about it, here's the signet ring. You and Mordecai can figure it out. Now, you ought to see that as an incredibly weak response by a powerful man, but you need to realize why it's weak. It's not weak because we ought to expect him to do the impossible. If the law of the Medes and the Persians in respect to things like this was honestly irrevocable, it's not weak for him to come back and say, I can't revoke it. It is weak in the fact that his lack of concern for an entire people group within his kingdom, that an evil and wicked plot was taken out against them, and all he can do is say, I don't know that I can do anything. That he hands it over to Esther and Mordecai and doesn't say, I will help. Let's do everything we can to figure out a way out of this. Instead, he basically washes his hands and walks away, saying, I've done my duty. It is indeed a weak response. After all, what he is doing is giving all the power over to Mordecai, which is precisely what got Ahasuerus in trouble in the first place. Just, he's lucky that Mordecai is righteous and just where Haman was wicked and evil. However, Mordecai, for all of his faults, shows his brilliance here in this letter. And just like Esther, shows his brilliance in subtle, subtle ways. Mordecai basically allows... And the edict that goes out basically allows for the Jews to have some self-defense when it comes to the actions that are going to be taken in the 12th month. Whatever this edict does when it goes out, it cannot revoke the other edict that has already gone out. He can't write anything that says, hey, that's canceled, this is the new law. He can't do that. Now, in chapter 9, we're going to read that this is going to cause the death of more than 75% thousand people, which I think in some sense, understandably, has caused some people to balk at the fact that this is precisely the kind of thing that the Old Testament does all the time that we dislike. There's a couple of things to say about this. First, it is clear from verse 11, twice in that verse, 
that this was only a matter of self-defense. And even if later on, in verse 13, it talks about the Jews will be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies, it is not indiscriminately anyone the Jews would call their enemies, but it is those who have attacked them. Go back up to verse 11. The king allows the Jews who are in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of people that might attack them. It is clear that he's going out of his way to say, they need to prove themselves by attacking you as enemies before you can fight against them. It's hardly Mordecai's fault that 75,000 people were dumb enough to try it. The second bit about this is to remember that while God is, again, the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, the way in which he relates to us is not always the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. That this particular part of history was incredibly important in that the fact that these Jewish people who are called Jews because they come from the line of Judah needed to be kept alive. Because without the line of Judah, there would come no Messiah from the line of Judah who would then save the world. So defending their physical lives was of the utmost importance. These things do not seem to be exemplary for us. We're not to follow this pattern. We've talked about this before. It's worth noting that Paul faced physical threats to his life continuously. Almost every city he went to, it seemed like they were beating him or stoning him or throwing him over a wall. Yet we never read of Paul taking weapons with him. It's clear that Peter, who was very anxious to cut the ear off a soldier who dare approach Jesus, had mellowed in the matter of weeks after Jesus had ascended. Thrown in prison, The Jewish leadership in Acts chapter 5 calls to the apostles to be brought before them. They beat them, Peter included, and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, meaning the apostles, left the presence of the council. They got back and they got their clubs and they got their sticks and they got their, their swords and they went and took it to the Jewish leadership. No, that's not what it says. It says they rejoiced to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The rallying cry of the early church is not defend thyself. The rallying cry of the early church is to suffer patiently. So these are not exemplary things for us. While many scholars and many commentators focus on that, what I noticed was something that was quite strange in this text. I tend to use a lot of commentaries for Old Testament texts more than New Testament texts. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Almost always when I come up with a question, I'm like, I I just don't understand this. The commentaries almost always help me. And certainly I didn't read every commentary on the book of Esther, but I was kind of floored by the fact that there is a major looming problem with what happens here that no one seems to address. And that is, what good does this edict do? The edict basically goes out and says, hey Jews, you can defend yourself. As though the Jews were going, whew. I was really just really not looking forward to getting stabbed repeatedly and just have to sit there. As though the, the nine months that they have to prepare, right? The, the edict has gone out. Everyone knows about the edict. It doesn't even happen until the 12th month. It's the third month. If you were told, listen, a whole bunch of people are coming after you, 
in a handful of months. And as a matter of fact, not only are they going to come after you, but we know the exact day they're coming after you. I guarantee you're hiding weapons everywhere. You've got like little hiding spaces made out for yourself. There's all kinds of ways that you would fight back. What in the world is this edict doing to actually protect the Jews? We would expect that they would already be... What, what's the government going to do? Kill them if they fight back? So we would expect that. What, what is actually going on in this proclamation that helps? Well, this is what I think is actually going on. The wording itself is important. And there's a handful of things to notice. First of all, if you read this passage, which is simply describing the edict, it's not actually giving us the edict, but in its description of the edict, and you read this and you go back and you compare it to what Haman wrote, you'll find that they sound eerily similar. Obviously, the major facts have been changed It's not to annihilate, to kill, and to destroy the Jews, but the Jews are able to do that to their enemies when they are attacked. I think that he wrote it to sound like Haman's edict for a very particular reason, so that when this edict goes out and the leaders and the provinces and the satraps get it, they're going to say, well, this sounds familiar, just like one I received a couple of weeks ago. Secondly, There are small wording changes that the ESV unhelpfully doesn't quite catch. The first letter was written to the satraps and the officials and the, uh, excuse me, uh, let's see where we've, the satraps, the governors, and the officials. And each one of those got a preposition before them, two. It was to each of them sort of independently, but all at the same time. So Haman's official document said to the officials, to the provinces, and to the governors. What Mordecai does is place all of those groups under one kind of preposition. It's to the satraps, to the officials, and to the governors. Separately. Independently of one another. The ESV sort of brushes over this because they translate it in verse 9 according to all that Mordecai commanded and then they write down concerning the Jews. But that's better to be translated to the Jews. So what Mordecai is doing is he's saying it goes to all of you leaders but it's also going to the Jews. In other words, putting the Jews on the same level as all of the leaders, the satraps, the governors, and the officials in the provinces. And what's more, probably putting them in front of all of those people because it is written to them first. So imagine that you are one of these satraps or you're one of the governors or you're one of the officials. You, you get this proclamation that seems an awful lot like a proclamation that you got earlier. You realize that it's written by a different guy who has displaced the other guy for reasons that may or may not be obvious to you. But this is written in such a way that it, it counteracts without reversing the first edict. You realize that the first edict was about killing the Jews, but now the Jews seem to be exalted in the kingdom. This letter has come to you with great haste, using the best horses that the king had to provide for it, when the edict has no implications for another six to seven months. The haste and the pomp of the horses, the exact matching nature, the exaltation of the Jews here, gives the clear impression that if you are a ruler, 
The kingdom of Persia has changed its opinion on the Jews. The Jews are now the favored people of the kingdom. And if you are a ruler who doesn't do all that he can to protect the Jews, you have every reason to think that the leadership in Susa will not be happy with it. If you want to be on the side of the king, you had better be on the side of the Jews. In other words, without revoking the edict, what Mordecai shows is that the power structure in Persia has completely reversed. Now, instead of the throne being against the Jews, the Jews are indeed the very thing that the throne's power is going to protect. This is why we have so much joy going out. This is why so many people become Jews. The people are becoming Jews. We don't know if it was true conversion, if it was false conversion just to spare their lives, but they knew that the Jews had power now. The Jews had the power of the king. The Jews had the power and authority behind them. So they were concerned lest the Jews come after them, and they moved allegiances. Some official proclamations simply can't be undone. God made Adam and Eve and looked at them in the garden and said, you can eat of any tree in the fruit, or any fruit of the trees of the garden, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you cannot eat, for on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And we might want to look at God and say, God, you know the easiest thing for you to do, the best way for you to handle this issue is for you just to say, nah, I'm not going to enforce that. We're, we're just going to pretend like that didn't happen. We're going to wave a magic wand, and it's all going to go away. But God, you're sovereign. You're powerful. You're almighty. Certainly you can do it. But just like the decree from Ahasuerus, and sealed with his signet ring was irrevocable, when God speaks, what he speaks is irrevocable. If he has spoken, it must be so. God cannot speak without reality forming around that speech, and he cannot go back on his word, for then he would not be God. So when he has spoken and said that you will surely die, that death is now ours, it belongs to us. We are frail from the dust, and to the dust we shall return. And we will not pass that test. We will not get around the death that is coming to us. Our sin and the sin of our father Adam has bought it. It has purchased it. It is irrevocable. Yet, in the gospel, which is nothing more than a proclamation, the word gospel is nothing more than a shorthand form of good news that is to be proclaimed. God has made another proclamation which does not cancel the previous one. It does not make what is irrevocable revocable but instead transfers power. Our edict in the gospel is that the power of our enemy and the repercussions of his evil and deceitful work is over. Our great enemy has been defeated and at the cross is shamed just like Haman was shamed on that pike. In Colossians 2, Paul writes this, you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. 
He took away their weapon, which we will find in just a moment is nothing but death. He took away their weapons and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Our enemies have been destroyed just like Haman has been destroyed. The rulers and the authorities are put to shame just like Haman was put to shame. But what are the lingering effects? What are the ripples of Satan's deception and murder? Like the edict of Mordecai, which turns all of the royal favor and power back to the Jews. The death of Christ turns all of the royal favor of God back to us. So while the enemy might come, and he might use all of the power of the old edict against us, and he might inflict us with death, we have a great ally in God, a great high priest and a mighty warrior who stands ready to help us even through death by raising us. Yes, he might visit us tomorrow with death, but he will raise us on the third day. Not even death can separate us from the love of God. So that what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 25 will come to be true. What Isaiah writes there is that he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. What is that covering? What is that spread? Isaiah writes, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Just as he spoke in the beginning, so he speaks now. The power has shifted. So death is no longer a penalty for us. But death is a release. Because of this new edict, death no longer holds us in slavery. Christ has taken that slavery away. Listen to what the book of Hebrews says. Since children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That slavery is to slavery of sin. How has he freed us from that? Listen, if you think you're going to die, you live by one motto. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let us get as much into our faces and as much into our pockets as we possibly can. Because once we die, it's all over. And once Christ has come and put an end to death, you realize you don't have to live like that anymore. You don't have to eat and drink to be merry. You don't don't have to have all of the possessions in the world because you trust that Christ is better than that. That there is an inheritance that goes beyond death. Christ frees us from the slavery of death. Death itself places us with Christ. Far from being a curse, death is now seen as good. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Philippians. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's good. Unequivocally. Full stop. He goes on to talk about, well, if I live in the flesh, I know that that's good for you. I want to help you. But he says, honestly, my desire is to depart, to be with Christ, for that is far better. Death no longer has the power over us that it once had. It has been reversed. This new edict no longer has death hold us in slavery. Death now places us with Christ. More than that, it prepares us for his presence. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians, says, I tell you this, brothers, 
Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must also put on immortality. It does that through death. Because of this edict, death no longer holds us in slavery, but it prepares us for Christ and it places us with Christ. And it is the final stamp of our conquering our greatest foe and enemy, In Revelation 12, we read that the saints have conquered the great dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They would rather welcome death than to turn their backs on Christ. Mordecai's edict made it clear. The authority and the power of Persia lies with the Jews. And he sent out messengers to make that fact known to everyone. Friends, the gospel likewise makes it clear. The authority and power, not of Persia, not of some temporary worldly power like Persia or Babylon or Rome or Britain or the U.S., but the very authority and power of heaven lies with the people of Jesus Christ. Let us no longer live in the fear of death which drives us to desire the things of the world, which drives us to desire to get as much of this world as we can, but rather let us live in light of the edict pronounced in the gospel. And let us run with that message to every corner of the world, to every hut, to every house, to every gathering of people where the specter of death still lingers and where Satan still holds his horrible and deceptive sway. And let us tell them of a greater edict. That while we may have been doomed to die, rightly doomed to a death everlasting because of our sin. There is a new saying. There is a new word that has been spoken to us that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. Sinners who have never heard of him. Sinners that don't know of him. Sinners that love to linger in their sin. Sinners that hate you. Sinners that hate me. Sinners that hate everything to do with God. Yet Christ is powerful over even them. For he won you. and He won me. The saying is trustworthy and worthy of our full acceptance. He has come to save us. Praise be to our God. Let us pray. Our good and gracious Lord Jesus, may we, like all of Persia, be filled with more light and gladness, be filled with joy and honor at the good news of your victory over death and sin. Steeped in pain, struggle, trouble, and trial, nevertheless, let us sing of the good that you have wrought for us, for not even death can separate us from your love. What kindness, what a gift that you have given to us. Praise be to the God who has saved us, to the God who has remade us, who has given us hope and life and promises to us more than we can ever hope to gain through this world. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.